We ready? Very good. The letter of Jude. Beginning in verse 1, we'll read down through verse 13 this morning, with our attention fixed today on verses 11 to 13. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, though I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, verse 5, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who didn't believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as, verse 7, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, these all serve as an example, specifically Sodom and Gomorrah, by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, or in spite of, verse 8, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively, woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we uh, hold before us your word opened, uh, in a sense, with trembling hands, having read uh, a sobering and, at times, challenging and confusing passage. We ask that as we have worshipped you in song, as we have worshipped you in prayer and the recitation of your scriptures together, that we would continue to worship you through the sincere and careful study of your inspired word. May you receive all of these as an offering of praise and sacrifice to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. may be seated. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 is love, joy, peace. Go ahead. Patience, goodness, faithfulness. Very good. Very good. I'd like to draw our attention this morning by way of introduction to the fifth attribute of the life of one in step with the Spirit of God. One, two, three, four, five. That's what? Kindness. Kindness. The root word in the Greek is kraomai, which is translated literally as useful. Somehow it goes from useful to 
kindness. Let's investigate why. Uh, the Greek language is uh, much like um, you know, Spanish in that there are root words and then there are prefixes and suffixes or beginnings and endings. And depending on the beginning and the ending around the root word, uh, it, it changes you know, what you're saying, either into noun form or verb form. Uh, it gives it its tense. It gives it its meaning. In this case, kraomai in Galatians 5 has added to the end of it stotes, giving you krestotes. And so what that gives you is goodness or kindness. Extrapolated out, you might say, transliterated, literally, useful kindness. In other ways, the same root word is used in the Bible are instances of necessity, immediacy, and warning. Now, when you think of kindness, do you think of usefulness, immediate and necessary application, or warning? Probably not, right? What you and I more than likely think of when we read that is the word niceness, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and be nice to each other. And because we're filthy, rotten sinners who are saved only by God's grace, but yet we still live in what's called unredeemed flesh, if you will, our redeemed soul is wrapped in a cocoon of unredeemed flesh, yet to be redeemed until we die and are resurrected again, and given new glorified bodies fit for God's presence, free of sin's presence, until then we will have to be told to be nice because we are inclined to be mean, right? And so that perfectly tracks in a general Judeo-Christian worldview. Love, joy, peace, patience, niceness. Be nice. However, niceness and kindness are not the same thing in the Bible. And given that the Bible is our authority, we should want to know what the language says. One author helpfully notes a distinction, writing, quote, being nice to someone means you are inoffensive to them. Being kind means you are looking out for them. Now that lines right up with our biblical definition of kindness, right? Useful, immediate warning. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not nice, but it is kind. And Jesus even said it, I, I didn't come to bring peace, but to bring a sword that divides families. I've come to separate son from father and mother from daughter. Well, that's not very nice. Dividing families over ideology or religion or eternal destiny, that's not nice. But it is kind. It is a useful, necessary warning. It's not nice to tell your friend that they have a booger in your nose. Thank you, Dad. It is embarrassing to be told, hey, you got a little, huh. And you think, oh gosh, how long have I been walking around like this, right? A real friend, though, will spare you further embarrassment and say, hey, you got a little, huh. Right? A fake friend will say nothing. They'll be nice. A real friend will be kind. See, that's the difference. And that's what the scriptures tell us is the fruit of the Spirit. That is the output of the one who is in step with the Spirit. Now, the problem in our culture today is that niceness has trumped kindness. I use the word niceness the unredeemed world uses the term 
tolerance, acceptance, or affirmation. These have trumped kindness. The other problem in our culture along these lines is that the church has also surrendered, if you will, to the tyranny of this niceness. We are told reliably that it is unkind or not nice to tell sinners that they are going to hell. That's not nice. It is not nice for the church to stand in pulpits like this one or to write on platforms that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God, irrespective of your verbal affirmations about Jesus. That's not nice. Christians are supposed to be nice. Your Bible says so, only it doesn't. It says kind. And for a while, and by many in America, in order to gain the favor of the world, Christians have been nice instead of kind. One famous apostate pastor had the chance to speak boldly and honestly regarding homosexuality in the Bible and the consequences of giving oneself over to such a lifestyle. He sat across from Oprah on her show, and when asked about this, he was nice. He said, well, you know, at our church, we want to be known for what we're for, not what we're against, and he was nice. You know, kindness would be honest in that moment. Kindness would raise the flag of warning, danger ahead. Niceness is inoffensive. It was something like about a year after that interview that that same pastor was exposed for having been living a double life for a number of years, cheating on his beautiful wife, lying to his congregation. See, apostates will be nice. Christians, we must be kind. Kindness tackles the one who is headed for destruction. You might break their arm or skin their elbow, but you save their life. You see, that's kind. Niceness says what the new pope recently said about homosexuality, quote, who am I to judge, end quote. That's nice. It's not kind. The Pope, with all of his influence, regardless of what we think or know about the error of the Roman Catholic Church as it exists today, he yields an, an, an enormous amount of influence. And in a moment of opportunity, instead of being kind and raising the flag of warning, he was nice. Or you might say, He nicely ushered people down a path of destruction. Friends, the task of niceness is a challenging one. If you're nice, you will be hated by the world, maligned, called mean, called intolerant, called hateful, and so on. This is not a pity party. This is what Jesus said would happen. They hated me. Why would you be surprised if they hate you? If you are kind enough, that is, to tell the truth, the whole truth, if you will, and nothing but the truth, so help me God, right? It is, if you will, into the arena of niceness versus kindness, Jude's letter explodes onto the scene. Jude is not nice to these false teachers who have invaded the church. He's not nice to them at all. He calls them ungodly, unruly, and he compares them to those in Sodom and Gomorrah who received the fire of God. And in our text today, he compares them to three known, if you will, again, apostates in the Old Testament. Jude is not nice to these false teachers, but he is kind to the church And he is kind to the world, that is, the lost people who are wrapped up in their deception. 
Well, that brings us to the challenge, or you might say the, the job of today, as we continue our study through Jude with part three of a series I've entitled The Character of Enemy Generals. In verses 5 through 16, Jude is essentially seeking to arm the church with the knowledge to be able to identify false teachers and distinguish them from true teachers, the apostates from the redeemed, if you will, or the good guys and the bad guys. Pick your poison. In verses 11 through 13, Jude continues his description of these people who have crept in, verse 4, by using three apostates, six metaphors, giving us one task. My one task will be to get through all this material in a reasonable amount of time. Our one task is a little different. So let's consider the first, if you're taking notes, three apostates. Three apostates. I've been using this word for a couple of weeks. I want to use it again this week quite a bit, so I want to give you a brief definition. An apostate is, if you will, one who is exposed to the truth but denies it. We can get a whole lot more involved in that. We can go into the language. That's what we don't have time for. Exposed to the truth, you might say even knows the truth. You might say even believes the truth but denies the truth. Satan is a classic apostate archetype. He knows God exists. He believes God exists. He is if you will, painstakingly aware that God is in control. But what does he do? He denies specifically lordship. You can believe in God. You can believe God exists. You can believe he's in control. You can even believe all of his immutable, eternal attributes and deny his lordship. That's the key. And all of those listed in verse 11, by way of example, these three apostates, they all knew God intimately in one manner or another, did not deny his existence, nor his power or control over the world, but they rejected his lordship. And of course, we understand from Romans 10, 9, that that is the key distinguishing factor between those who believe in Jesus and believe, if you will, on Jesus. Even the demons believe and tremble. They're not redeemed. To believe on him is Romans 10.9. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Lord. King of my life. That's to believe, if you will, on Jesus. Well, just briefly, I'm going to have to um, assign some homework or else we will never get through this. So, three apostates, he uses the first example, Cain. Cain would have known God well. You know, first human being to be created via the reproductive method in all of human history. In Genesis 4, which is your homework, we read that Cain and Abel both brought a sacrifice. Cain, being a farmer, brought a sacrifice of the the fruit of the land. Abel, being a shepherd, brought a blood sacrifice. Abel's was accepted, Cain's was not, and Cain was distraught over this. Not repentant, but downtrodden, angry, murderous, and wrathful. And so what is the way of Cain? That's the question. What does it mean that these false prophets walk in the way of Cain? You might recognize that phraseology, by the way, if you're familiar with the book of Kings. You know that each new king introduced to the chronicle is described in one manner or another. He either walked in the way of his father, who was a rebel and an idol worshiper, or he walked in the way of David, the good king, or walked in the way of Solomon, or walked in the way of another good king, by way of example. 
And so Jude, using similar language, says these false teachers walk in the way of Cain. What does that mean? That they offer to God fruits and vegetables? Well, it's a mildly convoluted question. It's a challenging task to answer the question. What does Jude mean? Well, one consensus is that Cain knew that God required a blood sacrifice. But he sought to redefine worship in a manner that was convenient to him. That's one interpretation. And it tracks. It's helpful, though, to remember that Jude makes several allusions to Jewish folklore. He references the assumption of Moses, which is extra-biblical Jewish literature. We haven't gotten there yet, but we're in the next verse. He references what we call the book of First Enoch, which is, again, extra-biblical Jewish literature. If we go also to what would have been to Jude's original audience, Jewish folklore about Cain we would read and understand it this way. Cain, quote, not only were a variety of sins, including lust, attributed to him, but he was presented as one who taught such sins to others. Now that's interesting. The idea is that you look at the encounter of Genesis 4, but you don't examine it irrespective of Cain's life. How did Cain live? What were his choices? His choices in life affirmed, if you will, they confirmed the disposition of his heart, as do yours. Your choices and actions in life confirm the disposition of your heart. And so it is in Jewish, if you will, literature that Cain's life is analyzed and commented on and then, if you will, reverse engineered back to Genesis 4 and what he did in response to God's requirement of an offering. Now, that's challenging. It's a lot for a moment, especially considering it is only part A of one point of a series or a sermon that has three points, and get this, 12 sub-points? Yeah, that, so I'll have to leave it for you to do a little more investigating. Read how Josephus speaks of Cain from an ancient Jewish perspective, same time that Jude would have been speaking to the church. Jude's letter is very Jewish, and so we want to get into the mind of a first-century Jew if we want to know what Jude meant. The idea that is consistent, that seems certain, is that concept of teaching others to sin. And this is consistent with Jude's critique of these false teachers who have crept in. They do not teach the way of life, godliness, morality, absolutes, They teach the way of, who am I to judge? You see? The wide open door to a sinful lifestyle, as opposed to Jesus, who on the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll study on Wednesdays coming up, he compels a very clear picture of how his people are to live in a manner that is completely the opposite. Well, we'll have to pause there on Cain and leave the rest to you. Genesis 4 and Josephus. So we'll say for now that Cain taught others to sin and these false teachers walked in his ways. They also, verse 11, abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Um, just by show of hands, who was here as part of Hillcrest when we were going through the book of Numbers? Yeah, that looks like it's about half of you, unless there's a bunch of you who just are afraid to raise your hand in a public setting, which I understand. 
How long were your numbers, guys? Like a year, it felt like? <laughs> felt like a year. Um, no, it was like, I think, I think it was about nine months. It was like 18 months in Exodus, and then like nine months in Numbers. Um, and in it, we came across the story of this gentleman, Balaam. And so I have to, I'll have to leave it again to you to go to Numbers chapter 22 and read forward really through to the end of Numbers to get a full picture of Balaam's story arc. He is presented as a prophet, quote-unquote, in that he hears and speaks the words of God. Only Balaam sought to sell his services for gain. And so a king who wanted to have the people of Israel cursed, Balak, he heard that this man, Balaam, he speaks the words of God, which is to say, everything he speaks comes true. I want to hire this guy and have him curse this nation Israel for me because I want to defeat them. They are ancient relatives. In fact, Balak is a descendant of one of Lot's daughters. And so they have some ancient family junk. You know how that goes, right? But nonetheless, this is an intruding force on his land, and so he hires this prophet. He says, curse them, because if you curse them, odds are good that your words will come true, because everything you've said previous to now comes true. Why? Because he speaks the words of God. In fact, when Balak approaches Balaam and says, I want you to curse these people, Balaam says, I can only say what God tells me. However, how much are you offering again? <laughs> What's the paycheck? Well, let me go talk to God because I'd love a lake house. You know what I mean? And so, multiple times, Balaam goes and he he is visited by God, and God says, don't go. And Balaam says, but they're offering me a lot of money. God says, okay, you go, but you only say what I want you to say. And then famously along the way, the angel of the Lord, which is believed to be a Christophany, the pre-incarnate Christ, uh, he appears on the road blocking Balaam's journey and his donkey uh, tries to go around the angel but Balaam can't see the angel and and he smacks his donkey and then the donkey goes a little ways further and the angel reappears in a narrow place and so the donkey you know goes and he rubs his foot against the rock and he smacks his donkey again and then the angel leaves and then one time finally it comes to a very narrow pass on his journey to go and pronounce this curse over Israel the angel stands there and the, the donkey just sits down underneath Balaam and he gets up and he smacks him and he's like you infernal beast you know and suddenly the donkey talks back it's the famous you know talking donkey this is where they got the idea in the uh, the movie Shrek um, and the donkey says why are you hitting me man I'm just doing I've always been good to you now you've hit me these three times sometimes I think my dog is asking me the same question what what? I, it's food. I ate it. No, that was my food. You ate my food. You know what I mean? You eat your food. I'm a dog. I like food. What's wrong? I don't understand. I'm taking way too much time on this. Eventually, um, Balaam does go and, uh, and he, he wants to pronounce a curse over Israel, but he is compelled uh, by the threat of death from God himself to speak only what God allows him and tells him to speak. And so Balaam does. He is obedient in that regard. But then as you read the story, so he's not able to curse the people. And the king Balak is very disappointed. But later on, as you read the story, you find out that the people of Israel, after, after a, a victory, uh, they become complacent. And they get mixed up with the daughters of the Moabites into sexual immorality and idolatry. And then you find out that it was Balaam who told Balak, I can't curse them, but you can influence them to sin, which will bring God's curse on them. Balak says, well, tell me what to do. Have your daughters dance. And the men being foolish and weak will be enticed into immorality 
and idolatry, and the curse of God will fall on them. Now, how familiar with God and his moral standards does Balaam have to be to give that advice? Answer, very. How? I don't know. But somehow Balaam knew. Balaam knew doctrine. Balaam knew a a sound theology of God, a sound theology of man, sin, judgment, God's promises, his faithfulness. Balaam knew a lot about God. And he is consistently used in the scriptures as a type of an apostate who is who dies in his rebellion against God. So what is the error of Balaam? Well, it's in part sacrificing eternal riches for temporal gain. It's certainly knowing who God is, but rejecting his lordship. It's a scary thought. What is Jude saying? Jude is saying these false teachers know their stuff. Right? I told you before, uh, one of my favorite teachers around uh, 2005 was a gentleman who taught an excellent Bible who then later went on to completely apostatize the faith in his writings. But man... Those were some good sermons. False teachers know their stuff. But they will always give way, if you will. They will always choose temporal gain, riches, the love of the world, physical pleasure, lavish lifestyle. They will always choose that in the end over absolute persevering commitment to God. Well, finally, there is the rebellion of Korah. We can't take a lot of time on this because we've taken too much time already. Again, I take you to the book of Numbers, chapter 16, in the case of Korah. We must remember that when Jew was writing his letter, he could pop off these references, expecting that his audience knew the stories well. Let us, if you will, offer that service to the letter of Jude. Let us know the stories well. That means today, on the Lord's Day, don't go home and don't go home and do silly things. Go read these. Go read Numbers 16 about Korah's rebellion. Go read Genesis 4 about Cain and beyond into his life. Go read Numbers 22 and then on into the 30s to catch the error of Balaam. In number 16, Korah mounts a rebellion against Moses. He says, Moses, you've gone too far in making yourself you know, higher, setting yourself higher. All the people of God are holy. But the scary thing is that Korah didn't just mount this personal rebellion against Moses he gathered two other influential men with him. And those two other influential men gathered 250 more influential men. And Korah, as the ringleader, brought his small army to Moses and said, we're all holy. Who are you, Moses? Moses is grieved by this because, of course, Moses didn't set himself up. God set him up, right? And Moses says, tell you what, here's how we're going to do this. Tomorrow, we'll see. God will distinguish who he has called into the priesthood. That is, who should handle the things most reverent, most holy in the tabernacle, in the worship of God. Uh, If he has agreed with you, then of course nothing will happen. If God agrees with me or if what I'm saying is true, uh, then the earth will open up and it will swallow you, Korah. 
you and your house and all your belongings. And so Moses was kind to the people of Israel. And he said what? Get away from Korah's tent because the earth is about to open up and swallow them. And they did. And the next day, here it is, Moses said, here's how we'll know what happens. And then we read that the earth opened up and swallowed these men and their families and closed back over itself. Korah's rebellion is to reject God's appointed mediator. We recognize that Moses is a type of Jesus Christ, the appointed mediator between God and man. In fact, it said that the Lord will raise up for you one like Moses, and he will be the Messiah. And so if you look at the progression, then you, you see it. They walk in a way, they rush or they abandon themselves, and then they perish. That's the progression. Have you noticed that Jude didn't put these in chronological order? Cain, then Balaam, and then Korah. That's not chronological order. Chronological order would be Cain Korah, Balaam. But you see Jude's pointing out the progression, the enticement of the world, the affirmation and love and acceptance of the world says you will walk in the way of Cain, abandon yourselves for gain, and perish in the end. That's the progression. That is both the activity of the false teacher and it is their demise. Woe to them. Jude compares these to spiritual terrorists embedded in the church, not only reaping the destruction of their ways, but seeking to take others with them. The way Cain taught others to sin, the way Balaam taught Balak how to bring a curse on Israel, and the way Korah brought many with him and ushered them, including his own family, to destruction. The exciting news in this is that Korah's own sons were like, you know what, Dad? I'm out. You're going to mount a charge against Moses? We're out. And the sons then escaped the wrath that came upon their dad and those who allied with him. And the descendants of the sons of Korah would go on to be songwriters, psalm writers for the people of God. And they're recorded in the Psalter as we have it. Incredible, the grace of God. Well, beyond these three apostates, we have six metaphors. I'll remark on each of them briefly, and I'll, again, offer to you my notes and my cross-references. There's about three or four of you who weekly, you ask for my notes, and I send them to you. Um, uh, You're all welcome to the same, you know, if you want them. There's a couple of discipleship groups that go over the notes afterwards. I'll send you the files. At any rate, six metaphors, or five if you incorporate the shepherds into the reeves, but We'll call it six. These are, verse 12, hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Hidden reefs, that is the rock you can't see but wrecks your ship. They're hidden. They've crept in unnoticed, verse four. It's the duty of the driver on the lake to observe the warnings, no? You got the buoys and you've got the signs Shallow water, hidden rocks lurking beneath the surface. Take caution. In fact, stay far away. That's the message, isn't it? They're hidden reefs. There were similar false teachers making various liberal theological challenges to the church in Spurgeon's day. He spoke of them in not a nice way. 
He said, these destroyers of our churches appear to be as content with their work as monkeys with their mischief. (laughs) Just the next time you think I'm mean, all right, just remember Spurgeon's analogy. But this is the key to what he said next. He says, avowed atheists are not a tenth as dangerous as these preachers who scatter doubt and stab at faith. Why? Because you can see them coming. See, we've got to recognize over and over again that Jude is saying with no uncertain terms, the danger false teachers present is that they are hard to spot. They're not obvious. They come in unnoticed, well-educated, nice men. Give me Paul Washer over any of these nice men any day. Listen to one Paul Washer sermon a week. It'd be good for your soul. Not only are they hidden reefs, rocks you can't see that wreck your ships, but they are selfish shepherds. Shepherds feeding themselves, starving the sheep. They are at the love feast. They come to the feast, but not to serve. They come to the feast to devour. Ezekiel 34, you might remember from our recent study on Wednesdays, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, that is the teachers. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been Feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. And of course, we remember Jesus looking out on the crowds, right? Having compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. You remember, if you were reading the McShane reading plan along with us, Samuel, in the introduction of the prophet Eli, the priest, his sons were doing this. They were feeding themselves. They were stealing from the people to fatten themselves up, perverting the young women who serve in the temple. Selfish shepherds feeding themselves and starving the sheep. They come to the feast to devour, not to serve. He calls them waterless clouds next. Waterless clouds swept along by winds. This is the appearance of provision, but no nourishment. Or you might say just simply unfulfilled promises. Solomon says, like clouds and wind without rain is the one who boasts of gifts never given. Here's the idea, okay? You're a farmer in the ancient world. We don't have modern irrigation and technology. What do you depend on for those crops to grow and for you not to starve over the winter? Rain. This is why the people of Israel were so readily given over to the worship of Baal, because Baal was believed by the the nearest neighbors, to be the God who governs the rains. They're farmers and shepherds. They need the rain. And so Jude says, these false teachers show up like clouds. Here comes the rain. Here comes the nourishment. They're wearing the garments. They're wearing the robes. They hold up the Bible, and then they open their mouths, but no nourishment comes. And they're just swept away. Unfulfilled promises. Instead of delivering the living water that causes the field of God's people to produce the spiritual yield of good works, these with the appearance of godliness deny the power of God's word and starve the people of God, making them ineffective. They arrive with promise, but are carried away with the wind of every doctrine. Next, Jude calls them fruitless trees. 
Let's read it in context because it has the juice, right? These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted. You might have seen this morning when you got here our tree that we had to cut down out front. It's very sad. There's no tree, just a stump just a dead tree now, just a missing tree. For a while, it was a dead tree. Now it's just a gone tree. Pretty soon, it'll be a replaced tree. Well, that's the idea, right? It's interesting. You you could stand outside this spring on our patio, and, and these big, beautiful oak trees that have been giving shade right there to our plaza. And then there's the one on the end, that's dead, giving no shade. What should be shading the people, right, was giving nothing. It should have been. It had the form. It had the height. But it gave nothing. Fruitless trees. Professing life, but producing death. In contrast, that is, to the tree that is planted by streams of water in Psalm 1 that yields its fruit in its season, these false teachers are fruitless. That is, they yield not the fruit of the Spirit. They're nice, but they're not kind. Not only are they fruitless, but they're twice dead, which you might assume is a reference to Jesus in Matthew 7, where he says a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. The implication is that a diseased tree does bear fruit, but it's diseased fruit. That's the idea. So they're twice dead. It's not just that they don't give the shade, it's that they do, if you will, cause harm. The more likely explanation is that twice dead is an allusion to the promise and warning of the judgment on the last day. There, at the last day, all of humanity will be resurrected. Blessed are those who are among the first resurrection. See, the first resurrection is the resurrection to life. The second resurrection is the resurrection unto death. Those who are in Christ escape the second death. It is appointed once for man to die, and then after that comes the judgment. None of us will escape the first death. That is, of course, unless we are caught up and transfigured in the rapture. But even then, something has to happen to these fleshy bodies. I won't pretend to understand. But these, these are twice dead. These are condemned to the second death. They're wild waves as well. Wild waves, they are unpredictable, turbulent, and unworthy of imitation. They are wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. In sharp contrast to the shepherds of God, the elders in the church who are to live lives above reproach, these men in their activity only stir up the muck You've been to the beach on the East Coast, perhaps? Well, the West Coast too. It's now, the water over there is kind of nasty these days. But a lot of times when the, when the waves are crashing, right, it goes from like, hey, this is fun, you know, woo, you know, to my shorts are stained. Anybody have that? I have white swimming trunks because I'm fashionable. And every time I go to the beach, it's like, I got to go home and bleach my shorts. They're like brown. They were white. What's going on? Well, the waves are crashing and they're stirring up all the muck in the sea. You know, fish poop, fish carcasses, that kind of stuff. You know what I'm talking about. Nasty. That's the idea. The activity of the lives of these men only stirs up shame as opposed to being a life worthy of imitation. Isaiah says the wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. Jude no doubt expects his readers to be familiar with these Jewish texts. Finally, they are wandering stars. Six metaphors. This is number six. 
wandering stars. Captains of ships before the advent of modern navigation were entirely dependent upon two things to navigate the Mediterranean, which of course would have been the context into which Jude writes his letter, the navigation primarily of the Mediterranean Sea. The two modes of navigation were the sight lines afforded to you by the coastline and the stars. A good captain can distinguish between the fixed point, the pole star, and moving stars, which we understand now to be not stars at all, but rather planets in orbit reflecting the light of stars. They appear to us like shining stars, but are in fact distant planets. Planets move. (laughs) The pole star, the one by which good ship captains are trained to navigate, is a fixed point. Jude says these false teachers are like those wandering stars. They are unreliable and they are dangerous to follow. Quote, they can only lead you astray. End quote. Therefore, while a series like this in Jude is not very fun, it's not even very nice, the alternative is that portions of the church of Jesus Christ at Hillcrest are left susceptible to the influence of these wandering stars. Well, that leaves us with number three, um, one task. Three apostates, six metaphors, one task. Well, the task is sound the alarm. Sound the alarm. We do that first by unmasking these false prophets, by exposing them, by showing if you will, from the text of Scripture to your ears, from your ears to your mind and heart, from your mouth to others by way of warning. We show them this is the activity of the false teacher. If this is what characterizes him, beware. We unmask the false prophets. We sound that alarm. This week a terrible thing happened in Maui. I'm sure that you caught it on the news a terrible fire. Um, hundreds and hundreds of lives lost. Unspeakable property damage, but of course houses can be rebuilt. Lives, though, right? And so the tragedy is not beautiful homes on the coastline of a Polynesian island. The tragedy is the loss of life. Well, Of course, immediately after the fires raged and so many lost their lives this week, the question came in, what happened? Why didn't they leave? Why weren't they warned? Wildfires in Hawaii are not that uncommon. They have warning systems because of the high winds. What happened was, apparently before the fires began, the high winds took out the system that would have sounded the alarm, that would have told these people, flee, get out of your house, run for cover, don't stay home. And because the alarm was not sounded, they instead hunkered down to their own death. A terrible tragedy. And such is the job then for the church of Jesus Christ in the day. Friends, we must sound the alarm. I might ask, if you don't, who will? Who else is in your neighbor's life? Who else is in your cousin's life, your brother's life, your co-worker's life? Who else carrying the true gospel of Jesus Christ that is not nice but is kind will warn them if you don't. Now, God's sovereign. His purposes will be accomplished. That doesn't preclude us from obedience to the command to sound the alarm. So we do so first by unmasking false prophets. We do so secondly to the next generation. Guys, this isn't fun, but 
you know, you might say, you might say it's generationally necessary. I am personally convinced that the reason the attractional church or the seeker model church took such great traction in America in the 90s, and I'll be honest, has been a destructive force in the life of the American church. Can God use anything? Yes, God uses all things. Romans 8:28. That doesn't mean that all things are good that he uses. So let's not get too convoluted there. I I only know some of you at least by my understanding of God's providence. I only know some of you because of an attractional model church that we were both a part of. But objectively speaking, the attractional model church that took root in the 90s and is still, if you will, the fastest growing, most influential method of churchiology has been a destructive force in the life of the American church. These have raised great followings, but have starved the people of God of the nourishing word of God. And I would argue that they were allowed to take such root and to steer so many well-meaning Christians into their orbit because the generation before them failed to sound the alarm to the generation coming up behind them. So this isn't fun. But I'm personally convinced that this is necessary, if you will, in biblical terminology, for such a time as this. 17th century English Puritan pastor Thomas Manton says, God will not allow his people to be snatched from him by a rival claimant. Praise God, right? Souls are a precious commodity. Christ thought them worthy of his own blood, but seducers count them cheap ware for their own gain. They care not how they betray souls. If only my children are adequately warned, then I will sleep easy at night. We've got to warn the next generation. And then, of course, we sound the alarm thirdly by simply proclaiming the gospel. <laughs> right? We must proclaim the gospel, friends. We've got to be able to distinguish between false teachers and true. But what is true? What is the true message? The true message is kind, the true message is repent. Jesus is the antithesis of all of these things. Each of these metaphors, Jesus has the opposite in him. He either spoke it or lived it or both. He bears the fruit of selflessness and obedience to the Father, even unto death, despising not the shame of the cross. He is a selfless servant at the love feast. He feeds us his body. Amen? In John's gospel, he is the he's the compassionate shepherd. He is the stone that the builders rejected, who has become, who is the cornerstone. He's the rock upon which we build, the rock we can trust, not like the rocks that are hidden dangers, but the rock behind which we hide like Moses from the glory of God that would otherwise consume us. He is the living water, not waterless clouds. He is the living water. And if you would only take of the water I'm giving you, he said to the woman at the well, you would never thirst again, right? He's living water. He's not crashing waves. He speaks peace over the turbulent waters. Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? He is the bread of life. He is the bright morning star, not the wandering star. We can trust him, look to him, set our lives by his course, and hide ourselves in him to escape God's wrath and instead enjoy his warm embrace at the throne of grace. His kindness 
leads us to repentance. And so if today you hear the voice of the Lord, do not harden your heart, right? That's how we sound the alarm. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for your word. And we are uh, continual students of it and by which we are servants of you. Uh, May you wash us by your water, renew our minds by the truth, transform our hearts. Uh, Lord, make us kind to our neighbors, uh, even at the expense of niceness, for such is required in these days. Lord, help us then uh, to do that which you have called us to do in this day and age. We love you and we trust you.